Jesse. Hey there, Jennifer. What's going on? Uh, you know, it is uh, that time of year, that crazy time of year. And I have to say, as a mom, I kind of hate the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you are the Grinch of our I duo. That's yes, I'm miserable. Fantastic. <laughs> um, are the girls ready? Or are you ready for the girls? Yeah. So um, what I said to my kids is that I'm going to put parental controls on the Kardashians from now on because their Christmas list represented something that maybe Kendall and Kylie would have written out. Oh, no, 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 no. It didn't have the Range Rover on it, but I mean, it was it was it was stuff that I don't have, and I was like, if mommy doesn't have it, then Santa is not bringing it to you. Right, <laughs> that's an excellent, excellent guideline. But um, speaking of Christmas, you went to um, I don't know if I would call it a cool Christmas party, but uh, you went someplace that is cool for a Christmas party. Where'd you go? Well, I think for any of us politicos. Um, being able to go to the White House mm-hmm. is very cool, despite who is in the White House. Um, and I would have gone, I think this is a bucket list thing for any of us to to be able to walk into this room and to see the decorations. And actually, I was super, it was really cool. So I, I got the invitation to go to the White House Christmas party, or to one of the White House Christmas parties. Right, they're always a I, of course, every year. first I thought it was a scam when I first saw the email. <laughs> and then I got the hard copy and I had to take a picture and send it to a friend. Be like, is this for real? And then I'm thinking it is the White House Christmas party. And then I find out that, no, no, no. I'm in like the peasant White House oh, Christmas goodness. party. They've got like 50 of these that, you know, span a week or two and they're a couple a day. Um, and so, but I figured, you know, let, I wanted to go because who knows when I'll have this opportunity right. again. Well, yeah. I went not for a party, but for one of the White House Christmas tours a few years ago. And I have to say, I mean, there is something about being in that building. It's just, it's so beautiful. And any time of year, but when it's decorated for the holidays, I, I don't know that I would have taken a tour personally this year. <laughs> I, when I went, it was a slightly different vibe there. But yeah, it, it's it's amazing to just be a part of that history and to um, to see it all up close and personal. It's real. I mean, it's just like I, it's so weird because you know you're in the White House, but it feels like you're actually in someone's home, decorated beautifully for Christmas. Right. And President Bartlett's home. It's the set of the West Wing. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> or uh, Claire from oh, uh, yeah. House of Cards, right? D- very like different her, vibe. D- very yeah. different vibe. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, um, yeah, it was it was very cool. So that was a really good experience. Um, it wasn't a great experience when I missed my flight on the way home. Oh, And yikes. then had to get to my six-year-old's Christmas, school Christmas party at 8.30 the next morning. That, that was sounds fun. delightful. Yeah, it was great. So Well, if we're talking about holiday parties, it must be the end of the year. And what sort of podcast would we be if we didn't wrap up with a year in review show? Of course we'd have to because, you know, 12 months in the world of politics is like a 12 lifetime. years. <laughs> it is a long time. I have the grades to show for it. <laughs> um, well, we're very, very happy to be joined today for our year in review conversation by Winelia Rivera of Rivera Consulting and Paul Craney from Mass Fiscal Alliance, who are going to help us think through what did we all just live through these past 12 months. Paul and Winelia, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, so if you had one word to sum up hashtag Map Holly 2018, what would your one word be? Please don't let it be a four-letter word. We are a family <laughs> podcast. Our moms listen. Yes. We're not sure anyone else listens, but we're pretty sure they're tuning in. Paul? Uh, I would say kind of boring. Okay. Yeah. I mean, most elections were predictable in Massachusetts. So the governor's race was a snooze fest. 
down ballot, got some excitement, but honestly, we didn't have the, maybe if Jen ran for her higher office, <laughs> it would have been a little bit more exciting. But uh, without that, I would say, you know, it was most of the time predictable, so it was kind of boring. Breaking news here, Jennifer Nessor running for her No, 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 that was Paul Creaney. <laughs> oh my goodness. Winelia, what's your word? Um, from my end, I would say that uh, it's uh, hashtag disrupt the narrative. Um, you know, I think from where I was I, sitting. Making that one word with a hashtag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hashtag, yeah. yes. Okay. You like know, that. I like to extend my, my, my narratives. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, maybe we should start by talking about elections and what happened, not just in November, because some of the big elections were in September. Um, Paul, you mentioned the governor's race. It was a little bit of a snooze fest, um, certainly a, a big margin for the governor. But a lot of people are talking about this Baker one and Warren one, both with pretty mm -hmm. big margins. What do you make of that, I think, very Massachusetts dynamic? Um, so going back to why I was kind of boring, I mean, even uh, Senator Warren was thinking about running for president while she's still running for U.S. Senator. Now we see that she's definitely running for president. Well, she hasn't announced that no. she's running for president. But she's calling I don't know people. That we can say that it's definite. You know, you read the Boston Globe and it talks about who she's calling in certain states and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, I feel like they were kind of rushing through to get through this election. Now, the primaries definitely had some interest. Um, clearly, that was uh, probably the most exciting part of the cycle. But, um, yeah, I just think for the most part, you know, the governor's race was a uh, conclusion. No one really thought much of it. Uh, and then the Senate race, it was pretty much done. And uh, the primaries is where it was kind of exciting this cycle. You know, and I would just add that I think what both of their victories really tell us is that our traditional electorate in Massachusetts is pretty stable. You know, if, yeah. we, if, if all else equal and, and without really changing how we're talking to people, we'll, we'll, we'll get results like that, you know. And I think that, that I, I agree in the sense that there's a bit of a snooze fest. Um, but I think it also just shows how stable our, our statewide electorate has become, both for constitutional offices and, you know, Senate offices. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? From where I stand, I don't think that's a good thing. I think we need to be engaging more people in politics, period, whether you're on the Republican side or on the Democratic side. Um, I think it's all about changing who is part of the debate as well. Um, so I would say that it's, you know, we need to be doing more. Um, but at the same time, you know, things are pretty stable. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's what happens with 55 percent of the electorate being unenrolled voters. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that the Baker Warren um, numbers really show that, I mean, people went from voting for her to voting for him to voting for their locally elected officials, which really, to your point, didn't change much because those were a lot of those were decided in the primaries. Um, and so I think that those numbers were really interesting to see to see how people voted. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it really shows that Massachusetts, this is my, my message all the time outside of the state, is that Massachusetts is not as democratic as everyone thinks it is. Mm -hmm. People really take pride in how they vote. Um, and it's really up to all of us and, you know, our candidates to be out there talking about why they should be the best person elected. Um, you know, term limits would help a little bit in, like, shepherding people along, but we it is what it is. I think one of the more exciting elections could be actually kind of up in uh, January. Uh, I don't really have an ear to the ground with uh, what's going on in the legislature, but you read more and more that there's some unrest with rank-and-file Democrats mm -hmm. or some of the progressives with their speaker. Uh, yeah, an incredibly interesting blog post from Phil Stigo, formerly of yeah. the Very Sierra Club the other day about sort of a pulling back the curtains of behind the scenes of how the legislature works. It's yeah, and you're starting to see more lawmakers now publicly speaking about it before the, the speaker's uh, election, which, you know, two years ago, four years ago, that would just never have happened. 
So I think maybe one of the more interesting elections will be kind of inside baseball about what happens with the speaker. Do people go along or you know follow what they're told to do, or do they actually stand for votes? Do they actually push back? Uh, that'll be that'll be worth watching over the next four weeks. Well, I think that that actually goes to one of the other issues in 2018 where we saw, and this drives me bananas, the year of the woman. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, I know. How many of have we had now? Right? I know. Uh, 1992, so 26 years later. Yes. So maybe in another 26 years, we'll tick up another 3%. Hooray! And we, yay, yay for women! Yay. We're only 51%. Sorry, Paul. We're only 51% of the population, but why should we only be at 28.5% in the I legislature? I was having drinks with someone last night, uh, middle-aged white guy who is, you know, a, a good progressive and means really well, but he was celebrating the fact that we're at, I think, like 28, 29% of the <laughs> legislature now is women. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, 15 years ago when I ran the Mass Women's Political Caucus, we were at 26%. Exactly. I, I, right. You know, nothing, nothing excuse me if I'm not terribly excited about this massive leap of progress. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that has been a gigantic failure is that our political leaders have not pushed forward more women. So, I mean, you've seen it in the Senate, in the Massachusetts Senate, where, um, you know, we've had, what, three female presidents in the past 10 years, which is wonderful. But, you know, that's also only 40 members. And But in the in the House, you don't see women in leadership as much. And I think that that is a gigantic failure. And what's amazing to me as a Republican is that we unfortunately can't put our people in chairmanships because we're not in the majority. But, you know, for the Democratic Party, and this is a question to the two of you, um, you know, for the Democratic Party, I look and say, well, where are you? You know, you profess, oh, we, we want a woman to be president and we want a woman to succeed. And we elected well, we so many more women. we did actually nominate a woman to be president. Well, no, I know. And and. That was not the right woman. You could have done a little bit better. Oh, my there, goodness. We won't go back there. It's your issue. It's year review of 2018, everyone. 2018. I'm going to focus us. 2018 and review. I'd love to elect a woman, just not this woman. But oh, it, yeah. But heard I it before. Think, I think the um, for the for the leadership in in Massachusetts Demo the Massachusetts Democratic Party, so, I mean, has there been a female chair? Joan Menard. Of the, okay. How long ago was that? Way too long ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. So, I mean, I think it's time for the Mass Dems to have a female chair. I think it's time for the leadership. Or a person of color. Even if it's, I, look, it's I would Delio. say this. I would raise that you're absolutely right within the context of Massachusetts, right? I think the getting into the weeds of the National Party and all of that, I think it's not really yeah. going to help us have a no. debate at this at this table. Um, but as someone that has often um, been in on, on, on campaigns that is working on the Democratic side, but not necessarily for the candidate that the Democratic Party wanted, um, which is very often. I wouldn't know who you're talking right? about. Um, very often over the course of the last 15 years, well, you know, I think that the party should be, could be doing more, um, honestly. But I think what that more means, you know, there has to be an actual open conversation about willing to have that conversation and what it looks like and what it means. I think it does start with who the leadership at the party is as well. Um, but I think we have to be honest to, be a little bit honest about what the party means in terms of elections and what happens inside of the state house, right? I think sometimes they're yes, we're going to the same holiday parties, right? Um, but we're not necessarily governed. Maybe not by the, the same. ones that Jennifer was at. Well, that's true. <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> Different true, holiday at parties. At least within here, yeah. right? But we're not necessarily always governed by the same set of rules and dynamics, right? But can I uh, ask the follow-up mm -hmm. question? To this, and I say this as a member of the Democratic State Committee, mm -hmm. does what the Democratic establishment um, want? Does it really matter anymore? I mean, look at the new faces coming in the state house. Look at what happened with Ayanna. You worked on that campaign. I mean, how much does it matter? 
I mean, what I would say that when it comes from when it comes from the perspective of the electorate, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. And that ultimately is really what we're all here about. Right. I think when you're talking about the chattering class, that's a different conversation. And that's when the debate usually becomes you end up with the same kind of candidate over and over again. Um, And I think for folks like myself that are dedicated on trying to bring non-traditional candidates into that space, that's exactly the reason, because it's also about talking to traditional voters and new voters. Right. So what I would say is that that's really the challenge that the Democratic Party has here locally. How much are we willing to also change within ourselves? Because we can't just rely on our laurels of having a particular brand for the last 50 or 60 years because it's 2018. But it's time, I think it's time for the leadership for Speaker DeLeo to, you know, realize that in 2019, there should be some women and there are some good women who have been, you know, chairing other committees or, you know, not And the fact that there isn't any right now in line positions. being debated is a, is a huge right, disappointment. for the next speaker, yeah. you know, a after that when he leaves. Okay, sorry, I'm on my soapbox yes. and I can't get off of this. Well, Jen, before you get off that soapbox, there was a Globe story, yep. I think it was last week, that kind of highlighted the situation with Jeff Sanchez leaving and who would take ways and means. And they, they ran off, I think, a list of about four or five prominent women in the House. Uh, I read that story. I was very interested. I was, you know, it was a story that you can anticipate was coming. But what I thought it lacked was any type of depth or substance for what those women, uh, you know, potential chairs, ways and means, what they would actually do. It was more of like, here's a woman. Right. She fits this category. Uh, how will this help the speaker? And it was almost insulting. I was like, mm-hmm. uh, do we actually ask these women, you know, what would be the issues you would do as chair of ways and means? How would you go along with the speaker? How would you object to some of the things he pushes? Uh, so I thought it was a huge missed opportunity. But, you know, you guys are definitely plugged into Democrat Party circles. Love to hear, you know, uh, who do you think would fit that role well? And what do you think that person would be doing as Ways and Means Chair? What do you think they would do differently uh, than what we've had the last 10 years with the current speaker? I mean, I think for me, what I would say is that it's bringing a collaborative approach to that to that position in and of itself. You know, I haven't worked on Beacon Hill particularly for, for many years. I'm recovered, thank, thank goodness. Um, so I, I don't know necessarily what it's been like in there for the last few years, but I do know how centralized power is in that building. And I do know that, you know, female legislators and women legislators do bring a more collaborative approach. I did not read that article in particular, so I can't say I can't speak to who's even in the running um, in, in terms of the context of it all. But what I would say is that it does they do bring a different it does bring a different approach um and i do think that you bring you raise another another point in what you're talking about which is are we actually talking to the women in positions of influence in the in the legislature to actually have this conversation with them directly right right? because it goes back to how we started off this conversation about the year of the woman it's not the year of the woman we live in a society where we're equally here every day Yes, <laughs> we're here right. every day. Amen. Hello. <laughs> so, so for me, it's really like, can the you know, can we have a conversation directly with some of those women that, that just won, right? That just won their seats, or who have been in positions of, of influence within the legislature for the last ten or fifteen years? Let's have those conversations with them, but we can't have a conversations around them from the perspective of the male gaze. And I think that's a lot of the times of what we see when we hear when we see the legislature being covered. It's about how women can serve the the current male the male status quo, and that's not really what it should be about at this stage. So we're talking about whether or not uh, there are are opportunities for more women to advance. But one thing that Jennifer and I have talked about is whether or not we will ever see, I'm sure ever is tough, but will we see another Republican in the Massachusetts delegation in D.C.? Um, Clearly a tough time for Republicans in New England all around when it comes to the D.C. delegation. What, there's one now in all of New England on the House side? Is that right? Uh, I, I don't think so. Anymore. No, I think no. now... Bruce Palkin lost. It's, it's yeah. under um, It's only Susan Collins. Challenge. 
Well, yeah, in the house. In the in, oh, in the yeah. So one total, both one bodies. Total. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so is, is there a path? We can talk about Massachusetts because I think it's what we all know best, but also in New England um, for a Republican to be a part of the congressional delegation again. I think Pop. it starts with the candidates. Um, you know, Jen, you you were a, uh, a chairwoman of the party. I think you're probably best equipped to answer this question first, and then I'll. <laughs> and to be clear, I'm not my... advocating for that. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine it's a with the way great things are. To, to engage in. <laughs> Just for for an academic conversation. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I was lucky enough to be chair when Scott Brown won his race, and that was so cool and you could just feel it but you know this it is where was, I think of another four letter word that isn't I, cool <laughs> to describe that moment Jesse <laughs> PTSD um, memories coming back oh, but it go, it does I mean that's exactly what Paul was saying it's the candidate right and it was Brown was just a much better candidate than Coakley was Brown was out there regardless of your feelings on him you're you you have to remember Scott Brown was out in January shaking hands at at Fenway during Frozen Fenway and Martha Coakley was turning her nose up at it. And so, you know, you have to also know your candidate. And you guys worked on an amazing race where you had a woman who was, you know, all the odds were against her and she was doing everything she possibly could because she was hungry enough to win that race, right? And so I think it becomes a... Are you hungry enough? Are you going to do everything? Are you going to step outside the box? Because sometimes the traditional, like, you know, Scott was getting off the bus and it was freezing and, you know, put on the barn jacket. It's like, of course you need to wear a jacket. It's freezing out, right? And who knew that the jacket and the truck was going to make him the every man? Um, And I think that a lot of times it just becomes who that candidate is and how the candidate connects with the voters and can woo more people over. It is a matter of numbers. And it becomes, you know, in Massachusetts as a Republican, we cannot win with the Republican Party alone. We're at 10.6 percent. I don't know. My math isn't fabulous, but if you need to get to a majority, 10.6 is not your number. (laughs) So you need some of that 55%. You need to move some Democrats over. So how does that math work in 2018 or 2020 when we have our next election in a world where Donald Trump is president, right? Scott Brown was elected and Donald Trump was not president. He is not a popular president in Massachusetts. So in some pockets, he certainly is. How do things look for the Republicans with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket here in Massachusetts? I think in any presidential year, it's always difficult. Um, But I don't think it's impossible. And I think if you have a mix of the right candidate and a person who is not afraid to speak out sometimes against the party. I mean, you see what happens with the governor, and he takes a lot of heat for it with Republicans for standing against the president. But he is governing Massachusetts. And at the end of the day, I think for any elected official, you have to remember that you are not just the elected by the people who elected you the first time. You represent every one of your constituents. And maybe they have the same views and maybe they don't. And I think if you find a candidate like that, you know, then maybe Republicans will be a little bit more successful. But, you know, it's it's tough. I, it's really tough having to go up against the media that's always saying how lousy Republicans are. And one other thing I have to say for Democratic women is that as a Republican woman and as a moderate Republican woman, it is very tough for us to 
go to marches, to go to things and join with all of you in a mission because you're always talking about how lousy Republicans are. And it's like, yeah, but there are some of us that aren't. Like mm-hmm. we, we all want to be sisters and we all want to be in this thing together. But when we're always told as Republicans how lousy we are, all other people here too is all Republicans are bad. It's like, but we're not. Like, you know, I, my kids think I suck, but I mean, other than that. <laughs> but that probably has nothing to do with party and that has to do with having my politics. Or like bedtime. Yeah. yeah, it has to do with I have too many rules and I'm, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so that's, that's where I think on that. So I, I have one last question and it's about issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, other things happened in 2018 other than campaigns, right? And and probably the, the biggest issue step forward, or if you have a different point of view, maybe step backward, um, was around what happened at the end of the legislative session with paid family leave and the so-called grand bargain. And around that time, fair share being taken off the ballot with the SJC decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things combined, I think, created a really fascinating policy dynamic in Massachusetts, one that will have implications in the coming years. I'm interested in the reactions from the two of you about um, how that all went down and where it leaves us. So the millionaire's tax, I would say, was uh, struck down for the right reasons. I mean, clearly it was unconstitutional for a handful of uh, reasons. But, I mean, that issue was debated by the voters, I think, five other times and rejected every time. So it's Well, it's, in an entirely different format. This yeah, one but was it's, polling incredibly popular. But it's a progressive income tax. I mean, it was, you know, it's failed before. And, in fact, the voters have voted on bringing the income tax down to 5%. That that passed, and, you know, I think we're just about there now. Um, so Massachusetts voters seem to be a little bit more right of center, or at least moderate, than they are with the partisan views. Um, but uh, as far as those other issues, I think, you know, you kind of had to, if you watch this stuff pretty closely, you, you you would almost get whiplash with all these policies coming out with these ballot questions. And at one point when the, the debate of what the SJC was uh, looking at the millionaire's tax, you weren't sure if that was going to go forward. And then the ballot questions, I mean, there was going to be a lot of things changing very quickly for our state economy. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, obviously I'm very pleased that the millionaire's tax was rejected. Uh, we would have been on our way to becoming the next Connecticut if it, if it didn't. Um, so that was a that was a bit of a uh, a blessing, but um, to Jen's point about or Jesse your your question and Jen answer one thing that Jen didn't mention I thought was when she was chair of the party with Scott Brown, you had a good camp but also you distinguished yourself as as a Republican, you know you were leading the party you were one of the first women chair that you know in recent memory maybe the first I don't know second, second. Um, so you were starting to create a brand and then Scott was creating a brand as well as a Republican it was a different type of Republican. It was a federal Republican, you know, one that was, you know, acceptable to go to the U.S. Senate. And I think the Republicans definitely, you know, need to think about that again. Um, if you're Republican, you can, you know, you can be pleased that Charlie Baker won. Um, but, you know, now they have an opportunity, I think, next month for election of their chair. Um, you know, and whoever's going to lead their party again needs to kind of think about how do you brand yourself as an organization. Uh, and especially with the president, and there's ways you can agree with him, and there's ways you can definitely publicly disagree with him. So I think to your, you know, back to your previous point, Jen, was that you you helped shape the party to be something that had a, that was distinguishable. You know, wasn't something that people could just overlook. And it started with you as running at the party, and then it came with Scott, you know, talking about those issues that caught fire at the time. Um, so I just wanted to mention that. 
Thank you, Paul. Paul, by the way, might be the head of my fan club. So. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. I hope um, the check is in the mail. I know, right? <laughs> I, I would add to, you know, to bring to bring this full circle that part of the reason why we continue to legislate through ballot measures is because we're not having a real debate in the legislature. Oh, yeah. The reality is, is that we're going to get that agreement right, right there. 100%. <laughs> and, and it goes yep. back to the role that the business for those of us that have spent any time on Beacon Hill. We know that the, the control that the business lobby also has over the tax debate in the state. You know, the reality is, is that as a as a as a as a commonwealth, we do believe in a, in a much broader vision of public good and what that means. Right. In terms of whether that's school, transportation or whatnot. Constantly polls will show that generally we want better things for our communities. But constantly polls will also show that we don't want to raise taxes. So we have to figure out a way to actually have that conversation within the legislature and have a legislative body that's actually willing to engage in that conversation that's for that's a realistic one. And we have to be honest about the over the the the, the big role that our business lobby plays in that. Whether that's our I traditional have to say some folks in the business community. I was just, I was just gonna add, excuse me, I, I was gonna say <laughs> you know, but the, and the, the business community isn't a blanket, obviously, because we have a very diverse sector in Massachusetts, right? We from hospital sector to finance sector to construction to life sciences. So I also don't want to paint a broad, struck, a broad brush of our business community either. But I think we have to be willing to engage in that debate. And we're not. And it's what's clear is that going to going to the ballot, although technically we know how to get there, it's not it's not getting us to the solution we need either. So I do think it comes back to the legislature and us and our ability to hopefully maybe break up leadership. Who knows how what 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 really the real solution there is. But we have to be willing to have the debate where we're supposed to. Well, and I think what's yeah. so what was so interesting that happened over the summer is that traditionally the ballot measure approach has been on the more progressive side, right? Mm-hmm. It's been led by Raise Up Massachusetts over mm-hmm. the past few years. And then you saw more conservative folks sort of learning the lessons, putting the idea of a sales tax on the ballot and creating this mm-hmm. dynamic um, that would not have been there if only one side was gone to the ballot. I am not saying that that is the right way to create laws or to legislate, um, but I just think it's a really interesting observation that after a few years of it being sort of a one-sided approach, it now looks like both sides are seeing it as a way to create leverage against each other um, or to move things forward that they're interested in. Yeah, it would, it would be great <clears throat> to see the new legislature and as they go forward to actually take up some issues that are a little edgier, um, that they traditionally don't want to touch. Like voting. And, like, like, like voting, yeah. Um, and, and be present and not just be on vacation and not just hang out with lobbyists. I would love to see them actually do some work and take on some of these issues because... And we should say, we're painting with broad strokes. We, there yes, are, of yes, course, yes. No, of course. I mean, people look, we, who there, are, are, you know, there are many good tireless ones. Tireless public servants. But, no but I question. think that, you know, at the end of the day, they all have a responsibility to, to legislate mm-hmm. and not to just push these things off to ballot questions. And, you know, whether it's charter schools that could have been solved or cannabis or... Um, uh, you know, the nursing issue or but the, I mean, there are so many issues, right? And, and they don't want to those anything. ballot questions did lead to a major legislative accomplishment, though. You know, while there were certainly pieces of the grand bargain that I didn't agree with, yeah. particularly around um, time and a half, um, the legislature, at the end of the day, did pass a massive package that raised the minimum wage, is going to create the strongest paid family medical leave law in the country, I think took us backwards when it comes to time and a half. But it is, I mean, you have to give the legislature props. They did get that done. So, all right, 2018. I know, Paul, you thought it was boring. I thought it was kind of interesting. <laughs> we'll see what 2019 has in store. Uh, Jen, I think we're back in January, maybe yes. with a, a look ahead. 
Yes, yeah. it'll be really exciting. I think by the next time, the governor will have been sworn in again, and new legislature, legislature will be new sworn in. New members of Congress. New members of Congress. And, um, and I have to say, again, congratulations on Ayana to both of you. That was that amazing. Winalian. I know, I know. You're just a friend, but <laughs> you know nothing about politics. I'm sure you Absolutely never not. gave any any commentary at I all. just send cute dog pictures in the middle of the night to lift spirits. <laughs> and cake. And she cake. was a, a friend in chief. Yeah. You know, you, you need those people over the course a- of a cycle. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> well, Paul and Manelia, thank you for taking a little bit of time to, to chat with us and help us think uh, about what we all just lived through. <laughs> yes. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. And happy Whatever New Year to celebrate. everyone. Hope it's a good one. I'm Jennifer Nassor. I am a Republican and I am the COO of Reflect Us. I'm Jesse Mermel. I'm a Democrat. I'm the former communications director for Governor Patrick. And we'll talk to all of you in 2019. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.